the passage in which today's teaching is based is uh, printed in page 8 in your bulletins. And uh, we're, we're looking at Genesis chapter 21. Allow me to read. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He sent them on her shoulders and sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered into the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby, about a bow shot away, and she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. And this is God's word. If you're new or or visiting Metro today, I want to welcome you to Metro. Uh, It's going to be an exciting year for Metro. We've got a lot of changes coming. Um, For the past uh, few months, we've been looking at uh, the book of Genesis. Now, We've been looking particularly at the life of Abraham, and very, very, it's, it's incredibly uh, important for us, not just in our time today, because it is an important time for us today, but just for all time, for your life personally, for the life of our church, uh, Abraham's life and his story is so remarkable, so important for us to learn. Now, who was Abraham? Abraham was called out of his social context, his economic context, his cultural context, his religious context. That was certain death for anybody who came out of that type of life. But he, he lived, he did this, and he lived because he lived on the basis of the call of God. He was bound by this promise that God had made him, and he lived on the basis of that promise. And as a result, Abraham lived a remarkable life. It's what we mean when we say that Abraham lived a big life. It was a remarkable life simply because, and it's not simple, but simply because he lived on the basis of the call of God. Now, you're sitting there in your pews. You look very neat, and you look very nice, and you listen to this, and it just kind of goes in one ear, and I don't know what you're processing, but if you think about that, that's very important because most of us do not live on the basis of the call of God. We don't. 
We hear the call, we hear the promise, most of us in our theological, culturally focused brains hear it one way and we kind of just let it sift out. That's how we live. That's, that's, I mean, if you're honest with yourself, that's how we live. But in reality, Abraham lived a big life because he lived on the basis of that promise. Not because of what he knew, not just because he applied it once in a while, right? He learned with great highs and lows, but he lived on the basis of a call. God had made this covenant with Abraham. A covenant is this life-binding, love-binding promise. And what God was basically saying to Abraham is because of the brokenness of the world, it's wicked, it's sinful, it's violent, God promised a redeemer through Abraham, through his son. Abraham had no children. Through his son to heal the brokenness of the world. And Abraham, decades are going by, he lived on the basis of this promise And now in this passage, after decades of waiting, Abraham is 100 years old. He has a son. This is the heir to that promise. Now, it's a difficult passage. It's a difficult passage to preach. It's a difficult passage to study. Uh, I don't know many scholars. Actually, I don't know any scholar that I personally respect that ever preached this passage in full but it's an amazing passage, and we have to hear it. And it tells us that life is full of highs and lows, up and down. You ever watch Count of Monte Cristo? It's a movie that came out like 1990s, late 90s. And one of the passages, um, if you read the book, you know, what does he say? Life is a storm, my friend. You will bask in the sunlight one moment, then be shattered on the rocks in the next. How do you endure that? How do you persevere through that? Very simple. There are three lessons, three sons. The first son, the second son, the third son, and each of these sons are going to tell us or teach us how to experience God and how to experience, how to endure the triumphs and the trials of our lives. The first son, we're going to look at the first son. The first son teaches us that God is trustworthy, verses 1 and 2. Three times in verses 1 and 2, we see God's promise being referenced. He, He did this as it was promised. And, and the result is what? Deep, abounding joy. A lot of us are running away from God's promise. A lot of us are running away from God's call, right? You're called to do a certain thing. You're called to live a certain way. And a lot of us, because we don't trust God, we run away from that. And then we wonder why we're so anxious. We wonder why we're depressed. We wonder why we're miserable. What does this teach us? God's promise, God's word is dependable. It's real and it's dependable. Right now, God is doing a thousand things, 10,000 things for his glory and for your good, for your greater joy. Not the joy that you're conceiving, but the greater joy. That's what he's doing. The worst way that you can apply this text then, what I just said, is you got to trust God then. That's what you're taught in Sunday school, right? You got to trust God like Abraham trusted God. you got to trust God the way Sarah trusted God. You don't want to apply the text this way. Why? Because look at Sarah's trust. Did she trust God? Her trust was horrible. Her faith was horrible. You see? Here, she's joyful. She's laughing. But it wasn't the first time Sarah laughed. Just a few weeks ago, we looked at chapter 18. God promises Sarah a son, and Sarah laughs. But it was a bitter laughter. It was a bitter laughter. It was full of self-loathing. There was mocking in her laughter. 
And she was laughing in God's face, you see. She says, I'm all used up. I'm worn out. I'm run through. Sarah was around nine years old at the time. She was barren. She had no children. In the Old Testament, to be barren, I mean, by, that, by the time you get to that age, you're not going to have children, right? At that age, she's barren. To be, to be barren in the Old Testament meant you were abandoned. She was betrayed in some ways by Abraham, sometimes in her, because of her own doing, her own decision-making on many levels. She had reasons to feel abandoned. But here, she now is holding her son, her own son, Isaac, the son of laughter. That's the meaning of Isaac. Her joy, her laughter turned from bitterness to gladness, gratitude. This barren woman is now with a child. And it teaches us not to just trust in God, right? We're told trust in God, trust in Jesus, but to trust God, to trust what he says, to trust every part of his word. You see, God's promise are less about your desired outcome, whatever outcome you're looking to, Right? We're taught if you, got, if you want something, you got to pray. And you should. But you got to pray harder if you're not getting it. You got to pray even harder than that if you're not getting it. What this passage teaches us is that God's promise is less about what your desired outcome is and more about the outcome of His desired transformation in you. Not despite your suffering. Not in spite of your suffering, but through your suffering. Through your suffering. So you got to trust Him in every phase of your darkness, in every moment of darkness. Sarah literally says in verse 6, God, well, laughter has God made me. So in other words, I'm laughing, but I'm laughing at myself. God has made me laughter. Laughter has God made me. In other words, it's a double entendre, uh, the word Isaac, in this, in this context, because on one hand, it reminds Sarah that God is faithful. So faithful that this miserable, raggedy old woman is laughing. There's joy in her life. She is known by God. She is heard by God. Yes. But really, what she's saying is, laugh, God has made me into laughter. In other words, uh, what Sarah is saying is when people look at me, they're not going to look at this woman who, well, some of them, but they're going to look at this woman, they're going to say, ew, like, look at her, she's nursing, she's 90. This is gross, this is despicable, this is disgusting. They're going to laugh at her, they're going to talk about her behind her back. This is, it's improbable, it's impossible, but it's also disgusting, right? And and so that's what's happening. And she's like, yeah, people are going to laugh at me. But really what she's, she's laughing about it. Why? Because what she's saying is that pressure to be beautiful in those days, that pressure to be married in those days, that pressure to be married and have children in those days. By the way, we're not too different today, right? Women experience the same pressures today. So don't say that the ancient times were primitive or old or were far past because with all the technology and education and empowerment, we're still stuck on the same stuff, aren't we? And yet Sarah has broken out of that. And there's freedom. She says, I'm free from these societal pressures. And it's given me nothing but joy. Verse 7, imagine Sarah, 90 years old, nursing. She's saying, they're going to laugh at me. And I don't care. Because I know that this child that I'm holding 
represents the promise of God in my life. That's what she's saying. She's holding the son of promise. It's greater than my current circumstances. It's supernatural. I'm loved by God. I'm known by God. God's faithfulness is personal to me. Now, the difference between religion and a life that's been transformed by grace, you need to hear this because if you grew up in this cultural context, then religion is big in our lives, more so than life transformation by the gospel. Religion says, I got to obey God in order to be loved by God. That's religion. Uh, If you do live like that, you're always wondering, does God really hear me because I just messed up? Does God really love me because my week was terrible? There's this insecurity that gives birth to what? Impatience when you pray? Because you're not sure. Is he just not going to hear me? Does he not care? It's going to lead to anxiety. It's going to lead to anger. It's going to lead to depression. There's going to be this bitter laugh. But if your life has been transformed by grace, by the grace of God, by the gospel, you're going to experience God's faithfulness firsthand in your life. It's going to be personal in your life. God, for some reason, and I don't know the reason, came down and chose me and reached out to me and brought me near and heard me. My deepest cry, the soulful cries, the deepest longing has been fulfilled in Jesus. And he reached out to me and he brought me in. And I don't deserve it. I don't deserve his love. I don't deserve his forgiveness because I had a rough week and I had a rough morning and I had a rough year. I didn't earn this. I couldn't earn this. And yet, now I'm just receiving this. It's a gift. What's the result of that gift? What's the result of any gift? If it's a gift that's given by such a, a giver that you love, what is the result of that gift? There is joy and there's gratitude and there's celebration. Now, whether you live a life of religion or a life in the gospel, you can experience the same trials. There's the same waiting at times. There's the same uh, suffering at times. But God has birthed joy through the suffering. A lot of times in our immediate, we want results today, right? We want, we want results yesterday, right? And in that type of life, we're constantly trying to pray against suffering and away from suffering. So when suffering comes, we just want relief. We just want immediate comfort. But here, decades have gone by. God has birthed the joy through the suffering in a way that made the suffering necessary. It's almost like suffering is a special ingredient, that one missing ingredient that brings out all the flavor of the joy. Now, don't get me wrong. Suffering is terrible. I've seen people growing up that almost pray for suffering as if that's a godly thing, and it's not. It's not that suffering is a result of the brokenness of the world, the wickedness of sin in general that has come into the world because of our sin, and because of that, there's suffering. There's no suffering in heaven, you see? And so it's not that suffering is good. The Apostle Paul says God works for the good. In our suffering. You know, heaven, heaven is, would not be a special. Heaven would be deficient without your suffering today. Disciples, uh, Thomas says, I don't believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Unless I see him, unless I touch the scars 
right? Where the wounds, the wounds, where the nails were uh, on his hands and his feet, I will not believe. And then Jesus appears. And, and, you know, Mary didn't recognize Jesus. Mary, beloved Mary, uh, who was looking for Jesus, uh, came to the tomb. The tomb was empty. Mary didn't recognize Jesus. How did she finally recognize him? It was through his scars. It was Thomas recognized through his scars. Mary didn't recognize Jesus had to call her out by name. That's how she recognized him, right? Heaven would be more deficient without our suffering. Why? Because without suffering today, without suffering that you go through, without the scars that you experience sometimes, there would be no such thing in heaven as courage. There's no such thing as courage without suffering. There's no such thing as triumph through the suffering without the suffering. You see, there was no such thing as sacrifice or patience or peace or this kind of joy. In fact, if you look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, none of those things would be brought out the way they do unless you go through suffering. And so you need trial. We need the fire sometimes. Sometimes you're praying and praying and praying. You need to wait sometimes. We do suffer sometimes. Um, Listen to the word of God. Listen to his promise. Remember the promise. The Bible speaks a lot more uh, calling people to remember your creator. Remember God's faithfulness because we so easily forget. And so look to the Word of God. Study the Word of God. God's Word is dependable. You can believe His Word. You can trust Him at His Word. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Abraham, verses 3 to 4, he names the boy, circumcises Isaac in eight days as he was told to do. He obeys. What's he doing? I mean, he's going to bring harm to his son. He's literally cutting his son at eight days after he was born. Nowadays, we're coddling our children. We can't, we're going to protect our children with our lives. We don't want any type of harm to come near our child. And yet, Abraham, eight days in, such an unconventional thing that God is asking him to do, and yet he does it. He's tearing the flesh of this child eight days after he's born. He's surrendering. There's this personal relationship with God. He sees what God has done, and it leads him to trust you know, how do you trust somebody at his word? Why is it so important to trust him at his word? You know, they say, they say you know, this is what so-and-so said. You say, no way. No, he really said that. No way. Get out of here. There's no way. He wouldn't say that. He wouldn't do that. He's my best friend. I got to hear it straight from him. I, need him. I need to look into his eyes. I need him to tell me. The psalmist says, your word is better than life. And so for Abraham, circumcision, tearing away the flesh, this pain, this cutting, it represented a transformative commitment. I trust and I will obey. They go hand in hand. Do you trust? Then you got to obey. You see, it comes hand in hand. You love somebody, you trust that person, you're going to want to do certain things for that person. That's what it did. You're going to want to sacrifice You hear stories of spouses for decades tending to their spouse. They're dying, they're ill, they're sick, they're lying in bed. There's no joy that that person intrinsically, well, there's no joy that they're bringing actively, but there's this intrinsic joy of serving the one you love, you see. You're going to hurt then. 
You're going to sacrifice then, but you're committed. And so what Abraham is saying is the whole act of circumcision is what? If I don't live according to God's word, may I be cut off. It's our covenantal response. That's what he's saying. May I be cut off if I don't live according to this. Remember what happened? Genesis 15, God blazed through between the two halves, cut all those animals. Why did he go through that? It was his way of assuring Abraham, I am good for it. May my name and my life and my heart, my soul, may I be torn to shreds if I don't experience, if I don't live up to my faithful commitment. And so now Abraham, eight days in, his son, his prize, his joy, he cuts his son. There's blood everywhere. What is he saying? May I live in accordance with your word or may I be cut off. You are good for it and I trust you. I will be good for it. A relationship with God is life-changing. It's life-binding. But there's joy underlying all of it. Uh, at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is, is uh, dying. The whole book, Moses is dying, um, and um, he's really recounting the law so that as he hands off leadership to the next generation, uh, they will follow the law and the whole book is really his summary counsel in recounting the law and faithfulness and love of God. And mainly what he's saying is, listen to God's law, believe what he's saying, and obey. That's what he's saying. That's the first son. God is trustworthy, okay? Now, the second son teaches us that God hears us. See, in those ancient times, infant mortality, the rate of infant mortality was so high. It was very, very high in those days. And so you weaned the child as long as you could. In fact, in most cases, you didn't even name your child until the child was around a year old. And so by the time he's around three, the child you know, you're pretty confident that he's healthy and strong. And so that weaning period of about three years is over. And you ended it with a big feast, a celebration. That's what's going on here. There's this big feast in verse 8. By now, Ishmael, which was actually Abraham's first son, not born through Sarah, uh, but uh, born through his maidservant, her maidservant, uh, Hagar, Ishmael's in his teens. About a decade has passed since Ishmael was born. And Sarah notices that during this feast, basically this feast is for Isaac, Ishmael is kind of on the side mocking Isaac. Verse 9, right? That's what's going on. And it's an interesting word. The author uses the word mocking here in this intense form. Uh, literally what he's saying is Isaac is the son of laughter, right? That's what it means, that, that Ishmael was Isaacing Isaac, right? Ishmael is taking, the author is saying he's literally taking Isaac, who was meant to bring joy and joy filling the household, and yet Ishmael, right, is taking that and twisting that joy and turning it back into bitterness. There's this bitter laughter, this mocking laughter. He's making fun of Isaac using his name, and the author is using his own name to describe the feeling of what's going on here, this dynamic. And it dawns on Sarah here, the inheritance. There's no way I'm going to give the inheritance to that kid. I will not do it. Ishmael's presence threatens Sarah. And Hagar, uh, who's Ishmael's mom, she was a slave woman. 
likely brought from Egypt during the time that Abraham, in his sinfulness, went down to Egypt, most likely Hagar is a slave woman. She's this Egyptian woman, most likely acquired during that time. And Sarah, because she had no sons at that time, she had a plan. Here's what you're going to do. She sends Abraham to sleep with this woman so that they could bear a son, and they do. It's Ishmael, right? And so the son, Ishmael, kind of, the word actually means, maybe, it's a kind of a twist of a phrase, maybe he's the son of promise. Maybe God has heard me, right? That's, the, that's what Ishmael means, right? Uh, and uh, what, really what she's doing is she's saying, maybe this is what God wants. I mean, he promised us a son, there's Hagar, I'm too old, maybe this is what God wants from us. And so she's twisting God's truth, we do that all the time, to fit our circumstances, right? Now she has her own son. Every time she looks at Ishmael, it's a reminder of horrible things. When they were in Egypt, when she was betrayed by her own husband down there, right? Um, Ishmael also represents the sin the twisting of the promise, the misery, because you got this one son who's kind of like the unwanted son now. Before, he was the son. Now he's kind of the unwanted son. And now you have Isaac, who is your real son. And on top of that, Ishmael's taunting Isaac, mocking Isaac. And so Sarah says, no way. He steps in to protect Isaac. And she says to Abraham, I want you to send Hagar and Ishmael away. Now, you got to look at the language. She's so upset. She doesn't say, I want you to send Hagar and Ishmael away. They live together a decade, right? She says, I want you to send that woman, that slave, and that slave's son away. She's already emotionally detaching herself and denigrating Hagar and Ishmael. Look at the jealousy. Look at the, it's, I can't say it's petty. It's real. But look at the jealousy and the malice. And really, a lot of it was a product of her own sin right? Or her own distrust. And, and that's hard. It's hard, right? Because really what she's saying is, she, as she's marginalizing this, this woman and her son, she's saying, there are two women in our household. There are two sons in our household, and that means there are two promises, and you've got to get rid of the one, because this is God's promise. That's what she's saying. Now think about this. Abraham is being asked to send Hagar and Ishmael away, to let them go in that day and age. There were no Wawa's out there at that time, right? There ain't no Wawa or like convenience store. They're going into the desert and they're going to die. He is sending his son, it's still his son, to die. Ishmael is a casualty, a casualty of sin and distrust. Hagar is this tool of sin and distrust. And now they're going to be done away with. Ishmael is not the son but he's still a son, and Abraham has to go let him die, and it breaks him. Verses 11 to 30, it just breaks him. So God comes in in the midst of the distress and tells Abraham, I want you to listen to this. Right? I want you to do this because both sons will be blessed. They both came out of you. God's, God's promise and his blessing, it's not just enough for Isaac. He says, I, my promise was to you, and even though you sinned, I will work through that and bring about a great nation out of both of them. That's what he says. They're both going to be great. It's amazing. And so he sends one out. God says they're both going to be great. Only one's going to redeem the world. Only one is the chosen one, but you can let the other one go. You can let him go. And so 
Ishmael and Hagar, they're both sent off. Hagar's name means stranger. Hagar's name means forsaken. She's cast out. And so in verses 14 to 16, Hagar goes to Beersheba. It's commonly known today as Mecca, right? The area of Mecca in Saudi Arabia, right? And there she's left to die. And she's poor and she's abandoned and she's in the desert. And she's in the wilderness. It's a sad state for a mother. She is the, in the absolute worst financial, economic, cultural, religious, uh, uh, familial place you could possibly be for a mother. So bad that she walks away because her son is hungry. Her son is thirsty and he's dying. And she walks away from his son and she is sobbing because she cannot stand to hear the sound of her son dying, right? You can almost feel the tension and, and, the, and the anguish and the pain. And verse 17, Ishmael cries, and God hears. God hears him. Sarah says, he's a product of disobedience. He's a product of distrust. He is a product of sin, and he's mocking, and he's committing sin. And yet God, in his compassion and in his faithfulness and his, and his love, comes down. And he hears. Ishmael means maybe he's the son of promise, but really, perhaps or maybe God will hear us. What does that teach us? One, we just, it's a reiteration of the first point, right? God is trustworthy, God is dependable. You gotta remember, Sarah wasn't heard because she had such great faith or because she was so righteous. In fact, you see here, Sarah didn't trust God a lot. She mocked God at times in laughter. She wasn't righteous. She's jealous, sometimes petty, so possessive, right? When Sarah mocked and laughed at God, she even lied about it. And here she sees Ishmael mocking Isaac, and there's no mercy. So she doesn't even really learn. She's not humbled here. But God had such mercy. What does that teach us? God's promise to Isaac, God's promise to Ishmael. It's not based on because one of the, one of the people was good and the other is bad. God's faithfulness to us is not because we're good right now, so God owes us. God's going to bless us. That's religion, you see. God's faithfulness is all by sheer grace, total grace, grace alone. Secondly, what this teaches us is God hears us. God hears us in our crying. If you are sad, God hears you. If you feel hopeless, God hears you. If you are broken, God hears you. And he promised what? I will make you great too. I will make you great too. Faithful. He's so faithful. The first time, there was another time when Hagar actually, Hagar actually ran away. And God in the desert provided a well. And now here, this is the second time, verse 19. God comes to Hagar at this well. Hagar is this, this poor, marginalized, sexually impure person because she had an affair with Abraham. Uh, she's this Egyptian child, so she's not even culturally pure. She's this, she has this child out of wedlock. She's immoral in a sense. She's out of every circle, every ring, even in today's ring. In this country, we're marginalizing people because of what? Faith and culture, ethnicity, language, right? We're doing that even now in our modern society today. Imagine Hagar. She is out of every circle, and so she's utterly desperate and hopeless. She's got no community, completely abandoned. But God provides the spring of water for her to live. She's completely out. And God then says, no, but you are in with me. She's dying. But God says, I am going to give you life. 
What's water? Water brings life. Water brings renewal, revival, refreshment, cleansing, relief. She's hopeless. Are you hopeless? You'll never be as hopeless as Hagar. You'll never be as hopeless as Ishmael. If God could hear them in the desert where nobody's around, completely marginalized, you don't think God would hear you? God can hear you. Sarah wasn't heard because she was great. Hagar wasn't heard because she was great. Sarah was selfish and tormented. She's a raggedy woman, man. Sinner, right? But she became great because she was heard. And so we see in verses 19 to 21, Ishmael grows to become an archer, a warrior, a survivor, resourceful, knows how to survive and live in the desert, all the tools that you need to become a leader. He acquires it there. God has worked through the suffering to make him into a nation. You see that? Now, a lot of us say, well, I tried that. I tried to pray. God doesn't care. I've given up. He doesn't hear. No one understands what it's like to not be heard more than Jesus. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's nothing like that silence in that deepest cry, a father withholding help for his son. And Jesus obeyed. Jesus was perfect. He's been through everything. That means you can go to him with anything. Cry out to him. Trust him at his word. Go to him in prayer. The only prerequisite is that you are broken, that you are weak, that you acknowledge how helpless you are. There's this type of weakness that's going to make you bitter and weepy because you're so focused on the circumstance and you want relief and God's not giving you relief. But then there's this type of weakness that comes out of that that brings you to see that there are greater and deeper things that you need to be praying for because you realize realize that some things are so broken, some things are so out of sorts, you are so broken that it's not, you may want relief, you may need relief, but actually you need something even greater than that circumstance. And it's that type of brokenness. You got to get to that place to prime you to really experience God. We all need that. How do you get it? How do you get there? You got to look at the third son. First son teaches us what it means to trust. Second son teaches us we need to cry out and pray. Third son teaches us why you would or how you would do that in the first place. And so in Galatians chapter 4, the apostle Paul says there's no miracle at the time of Ishmael. At the birth of Ishmael, Ishmael's birth was a natural birth, right? Ishmael's birth was born out of sin and, and, and disobedience, distrust. The miracle was the birth of Isaac. That was the supernatural birth. And, and Paul says, Christians are like the children of that miracle. We, the church, are the children of that free woman, sinful, raggedy, nasty, really mean, right? And yet we are the children of that free woman because it was based on the promise of God, right? We're not children because of anything we've done, anything we've earned because of our obedience, 
right? If you did it, if it was because, if you got the miracle because you obeyed or because of something you did, then that's not a miracle, right? You earned it. It was owed to you. It's why the gospel is more important than rules, above rules. It doesn't mean the rules are not important. The gospel is above. It it transcends even your own obedience, right? Because it doesn't rest on your obedience. It rests on Jesus' obedience. Jesus' obedience all the way to the cross. That's the ultimate miracle. The gospel is about new life in Jesus because he is the ultimate son of the promise. He's going to bring ultimate joy to all of his children, all of his descendants, laughter to the whole world. He's going to restore it. And so the gospel really is about what what the Apostle Paul says is Hagar, uh, Ishmael, and Isaac are really about the old life and the new life. What does that mean? Hagar is a slave. And so if you're born from a slave, you're a slave, right? And so you're born into it, and you're helpless, and you're bound. That law sin, the oppression of sin, it rules you. And so religion is like doing time. Religion is like slavery. You're trying to work your way back in, right? That's what's going on. You're working your way out of guilt. You're working your way into repentance. There's this labor and the work and the disappointment and the sadness. And the result is what? There's a bitterness and a mockery. Now, you may say, well, I'm not religious. I'm actually pretty free. Really? Try to be perfect for one week on your own. You can't. Try to be perfect for one day on your own. There's this thing that I learned, like, I, I was a class I took in seminary. They're talking about, um, uh, it's called the tongue assignment. Try not to, I'm just going to kind of summarize it. Try not to say anything bad about anybody. Try not to uh, uh, curse anybody. Try not to uh, lie about anything. Try not to take credit for yourself. Try even just for those four things for an entire week on your own. Even when you're conscious and aware, you can't help it, let alone what you're thinking, let alone what you're intending. You see that? There's laughter. There's a bitter laughter. There's a mockery. You tend to look at other people who are failing, right? You say, well, you know, I'm not like that. I'm like this, right? And we tend to look and look down on other people. There's a mockery. There's a bitterness, right? If you even try to do that on your own. Because even if you're not a religious person, you are still a slave to something. The Bible says we were made to worship. But ever since the Garden of Eden, when man said, I will not trust God, I don't think God is for me. God's withholding this fruit from me. Maybe he's not really for me, right? So I'm not going to obey. I'm going to listen to someone else. I'm not going to listen to God's word. I'm not going to go to God. And so ever since Adam sinned, in our heart, because of our sin, there's this God-sized hole that oftentimes develops, and you're constantly looking to fill this hole with acceptance and beauty and love and, and, and wealth, all these kind of things, and you're constantly working to earn it. You're constantly working and laboring and sweating and crying and suffering because of it, and you're desperate for acceptance and beauty and wealth and love. You're slaves. That's what the Apostle Paul's saying, but the new life, he says, you got to kick that out of the house. you got to get it out. The new life is supernatural. It's born through God, through Jesus alone, through grace alone. And so that means you need to let the slave go. You're free. That's the end of torment. That's the end of your misery. Like Abraham, it's going to be painful. You ever try to live a certain way all your life and you realize now because of a greater love, you've got to let it go? That is hard. It is impossible without the gospel. But because there, now there's two things living here in your house, two women, two children, two promises, This is the son of the promise. Follow the son. Let the other son go. Otherwise, there's no misery like the misery of living with both in the same house. That's what he's saying. 
How do you let it go? How do you let that go? Jesus Christ is that third son. He is the greater Isaac, God's only son, God's son, the ultimate son of promise. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets at a well in the heat a woman, a Samaritan woman. And a Samaritan woman is outcast. She's out of every circle. And it's a whole other sermon. But Jesus offers her something even more important than water. We need water to survive. Hagar is dying. She came for water. Jesus basically says, I'm going to offer you something more important than water. And when she receives it, there is a relief there. She runs back to the town that laughed at her, that poked fun at her, that mocked her. And like Sarah, she says, I'm free. I'm going to go back and tell them who I just met. There's freedom there. Sarah says, when people look at me, when they look at Isaac, they're going to laugh. And Ishmael, that's exactly what he did. He mocked. He laughed. In Luke chapter 23, Jesus is on the cross. And people looked at him and said, yeah, you're, you're, you're the king? Is that who you are? And so they mocked him. They, they mocked him as a king, and they put the sign above his head, and they said, here's Jesus, the king of the Jews. They mocked him. They put a sign on him, above him. Sarah was barren. Sarah's in the desert and hears this promise, and God hears her bitterness, but that promise brought her joy. When Ishmael and Hagar were in the desert, they're crying out, God hears them in the desert, and that promise brought relief. And now Jesus is on the cross, the ultimate desert. And when he cries out, there is no relief, no joy. He's suffering. He's laboring. He's sweating. He says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? In other words, the nails I can endure. The thorns I can endure. The people laughing at me I can endure. But this I cannot endure. There is no well. There is completely dry. I see God as distant from me, and now my soul is thirsting. And so he cries out, I am thirsty. In other words, Jesus Christ is cosmically abandoned by the Father so that we could be brought in by the Father. Cosmically rejected by the Father so that we can be heard. And so on the cross, Jesus becomes the ultimate Hagar. He says, I'm forsaken. I'm a stranger. His body is torn, but more importantly, his soul, relationally, cosmically torn from the Father. No one would understand what it's like to lose your son, to give up your son. And yet God did that for you. He didn't answer so that he could answer you, your deepest soul's longings. He's saying the only thing that can fulfill that is Christ. That's what he's saying, I'm going to give him to you. That's the well. That's the relief. No one knows, like the Father, what it's like to let it go, to let the life go. But God did it for his own glory and for your good. Jesus did it for the glory of God and for your good. Surely you can give up your life for the glory of God and for your good. You can let that old life go. That's where the power is.
God gives you his spirit residing in you to let it go. You see that? That's what it means to live in covenant. When you're living in covenant, you're saying, I only have one wife. I will not give myself to another. When you're in a covenant with God, you're saying, I only have one God. I will not give myself to another. And so Jesus Christ, like the circumcision, was torn away, right, so that you could be brought in and that God can be your God and you could be in that covenant relationship with him, all right? It's amazing because we're the Ishmael. We're the ones that are rejected, born in sin, and yet God brought us in, he heard. And surely if he heard your cry then, will he not hear your cry now? He will. He is faithful. This year, stop trying to just manage sin in your life, okay? Don't just coexist with it. Don't just say, I'll deal with it, but I can't right now. I'm tired. You know what? You're going to get even more tired because I'm 46, and I said that when I was 30, and I said that when I was 20. You're going to get even more tired, all right? So don't just try to manage your sin. Don't just coexist with your sin. Don't deceive yourself. You know, one of my spiritual fathers used to say to me, you know, the devil's favorite word is someday. You know, someday I'll give my life to the Lord. Someday I'll do these things. Okay? That's, if you deceive yourself, you're just going to justify your sin. It's going to lead to misery. Find relief in the deep well of living water that is Christ. Okay? Will you do that as we head into the new year? Let's pray.